invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll read from Isaiah um, 9-2. So let's read God's word together. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, we had a Christmas ritual in our house. Um, I have four, I don't have four siblings. I'm one of four. I have three siblings. I can count. And, um, and so we would, uh, every night on Christmas Eve, we would all sleep in the same room once everybody graduated beyond cribs and that kind of thing. So, so we'd all sleep in the same room. Thankfully, since I'm the oldest, I, uh, I was usually able to leverage that into getting a spot on the bed instead of on the floor. And, uh, and so we would we'd gather in the room and we'd be excited and, um, you know, we'd try to go to sleep. Well, there were degrees of trying, but particularly once, once we got older and treasured sleep more, then, uh, then we would try to go to sleep. And, and after, you know, just like three or four hours of, of, of trying, finally we'd, we'd drift off. And I, I never really slept well on Christmas Eve. And, and if I'm honest, I, I still don't usually. But, uh, but you know, we'd, we'd go to sleep and then we'd wake up in the morning and, um, and we had this, this second part of the ritual. The, the wake-up time was always pre-negotiated. So we'd negotiate with mom and dad what time it was acceptable for us to get up. So we would wake up and then we'd wait almost until the agreed-upon time. And uh, you, you know, usually five or ten minutes before that, we would round up and we'd say, okay, it's time. And, and we'd let them know that we were awake and we were ready to come downstairs. And, um, and so we would, um, we had, we were really cool, we had two home phone lines. And so I would pick up the corded phone and call downstairs and say, we're awake, can we come downstairs now? And mom would say, no. <laughs> because preparations had to be made, it was important that we were filmed coming down the stairs, and so the camera had to get set up and um, and so mom would do that, and, and dad would make coffee, and I don't know what exactly took so long, but I think maybe they, for, they lost the, uh, the, um, the camera and had to go buy a new one, and then hand grounds the coffee and had to gather wood to heat the water. And he, so like two hours later, finally, we, we'd get another, a call back, and it would be time to go downstairs. But, but while we were waiting, I mean, it just seemed like it took forever, and we'd be sitting there on the top step on the landing and just waiting and thinking about you know, what did Santa bring? What, what's in the presents? And, and uh, you know, when are we finally going to be able to come downstairs? And so we ran down whenever we finally got the green light. And um, as far as I know, there were no serious injuries. So um, we're glad for that. And, um, and then we'd go and we'd open our presents. And five minutes later, we'd be done because we'd just tear into them. And, uh, but but I, I remember just that sense of longing. And, um, you know, we still talk about those times. And even the, the first Christmas after I got married, um, my siblings thought it was important to initiate Courtney into our family ritual. And so once again, we slept in the same room. She thought they were kidding. <laughs> they were not. And so my sister got married last Memorial Day, and we let her, um, we let her fiancé know that that would be taking place this Christmas at well, uh, as well. My siblings don't know this yet, but there's no way I'm sleeping in the same room as them this year. So um, they, they can prepare for disappointment. But, but you know, we look back on those memories, and, and they're so fun, and, and just kind of feel longing to experience that again and to have everyone together. You know, we usually get to see most of our family at Christmas, but two of us are married now, two live out of state, and so getting everyone together whenever it's possible, you know, the, the time's pretty short that that works out. And, you know, it's the same at Thanksgiving. We got to see um, Courtney's family this year and my family last year. 
year, and it's just difficult. You know, we, we feel that longing. It's, it's not so much for presence anymore, but, but we long to, to be together with our family, to have things like they were. You know, we, we miss our dad and, and wish that we got to experience Christmas with him and, and all of those things that we experience, you know. And I wonder for you this Christmas, what is your heart longing for? What is the thing that, that you're longing for? And if it's a present, then go a little bit deeper. But what is it? Is it to be with someone? Is it for a relationship to be restored? Is it for a renewed sense of purpose? A new sense of hope? There's something about Christmas that, that brings out our deepest longings. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. It's called Longing for Christmas. I'm Brandon Blackson. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's great to be with you. I'm really excited about this series and um, excited about it's been fun preparing this message and, and getting it ready and getting to dredge up old stories about what my family did on the night before Christmas. But, uh, but there's something about Christmas and, and just this time of year, the deepest longings of our hearts are laid bare. And, you know, the, the rest of the year, we can kind of put it at the back of our mind, not really acknowledge it. We can be in denial. But something about this time of year, whenever we're listening to the music, whenever we're um, planning family gatherings, whenever we're doing all the things that you do at Christmas, it's just, there's just something about that that, that brings up all of those things that, that we normally try to suppress and, and forces us to deal with them. And, uh, and so there are all these longings to, to be together, to, to have restored relationships and all of those things. There's also the, the deeper longing, really the longing that... That's at the core of what Christmas is. But St. Augustine put it this way. He said, God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. And there's that deep longing that each of us has that can only be satisfied with, with a relationship with Christ and knowing him. And, and no matter what we try to, to fulfill that longing with, to, no matter if it's stuff or even relationships with other people, with being really busy, getting lots of good work done, accomplishing all the things, you know, no, nothing can fulfill that. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Our hearts are beset with longing until that longing is fulfilled. And one of the things that we'll see, and really this is where we're going, this is kind of the spoiler for the whole series, so um, I apologize to anyone else who may be preaching after me, but, but here's what the truth is. Jesus fulfills our deepest longings. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's really why we're here together. That's why we have a church, is because we know that we find those things in him, that he fulfills what, what is deepest within us. And so that's what we're looking at this week, this, um, this month, as we're leading up toward Christmas. And, and what we're going to start is our need for hope, our need for hope and the longing that we have to have hope, because it's something that is fundamental to us, that, that we all desperately need, and, and yet whenever we don't have it, it's almost impossible to continue. It's difficult just to get out of bed, difficult to, to put one foot in front of the other, difficult to do anything, because we wonder if we don't have hope, what's, what's the point? What is all this for? There's a, in the 1940s, there was a New York City bus driver, and he'd, he'd been driving a bus for like 20 years and, and you know, was faithful, was always on time, and, and hit all of his stops when he was supposed to, showed up every day, you know, never missed a day of work. And then one day, there were people who were waiting for him on his first stop, and he just didn't show up. He just wasn't there, and, and they waited to see if maybe he was running late, and, and he just, that whole day, he never showed up. And uh, eventually, they, they found out, um, they, the, the owner of the bus company got a call, and it was the bus driver. He had driven all the way to Florida and had run out of money and asked him to, to wire money so that he could fill up the bus and drive back. But uh, they, they were talking to him and asking him why, why he had done that, why he just left and, and driven to Florida. And he said, oh, I guess I, I was just looking for hope. 
was just looking for hope. You know, he'd gone through day after day, and every day was the same, and he saw all the same sights and all the same people, and, and every stop was, was the same, and uh, he just couldn't take it anymore. He just thought, what's the point? What, what's the point of doing this again? And so he just left and drove south and hung out on the beach. And uh, initially he got arrested, but no charges were filed, so that ended out well for him. But, you know, we all have that deep longing. And once we run out of hope, where do we go? What do we do? What do we do when hope is in short supply? And in a world that's beset with violence, with division, and with suffering, we are desperate for hope. Whenever we hear about all the things that were going on, I mean, this morning, whenever I was getting ready, I got another alert on my phone that, that there was violence taking place. And whenever we look at, at the political situation of our country, just the, the fact that we can't even have a conversation, that our perceptions of reality are fundamentally different and don't know how to bridge that gap, I mean, we need hope. And uh, there's, I don't have a whole lot of hope that, that that's going to get better on its own. Whenever we look at all the suffering that we experience, we see things going on in the world and, and then in our individual lives. There, there are so many things just with the, the people in our church community are dealing with. And uh, we wonder, where are we going to find hope? How are we going to find hope? And so we look at all of these things, and, and to, to find that, we're going to look back 2,700 years ago to the time of Isaiah and uh, the time that, that he was ministering. He, he was ministering in Judah. This was at the time in, in Israel's history whenever the monarchy had divided, the, the divided monarchy in the north was the kingdom of Israel, and the south was um, the kingdom of Judah. And so they, they had divided at this point. And during that time, during the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire was the dominant force in that part of the world. And um, they, had, they were basically sweeping the land, taking over other, um, other nations and at one point, Israel decided to partner with Syria um, to try to stand up against Assyria, and, and, and Assyria um, beat them and then took over parts of it, and then afterward they continued to resist, and so they basically just, just conquered all of Israel, and, and they really didn't recover after that. And so in the midst of, of all of this, I, Isaiah was ministering and, and prophesying in Judah and, um, and was basically trying to give the people reason to go forward. And in the face of their Assyrian conquerors, there was little reason to hope. These, uh, these people had just taken over our, our, uh, our relatives, our, our cousins, the ones we derived from the same ancestor, um, had taken them over and didn't really have any problem. We were in our, our army's not that much mightier. We're... Uh, we don't stand much of a chance. What can we really hope for? How are things going to get better? Are we just, you know, are we going to be killed? Or are we going to be enslaved? What's going to happen? Why should we hope? And in spite of all that was going on, Isaiah spoke of a light in their darkness. Isaiah spoke of a reason for them to hope. And so this is what he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Isn't that what it feels like whenever you're walking through those times and you really don't have hope? I mean, just like walking in the dark, just not even being able to tell, you know, where, where would I even take my next step? How, how would I continue? It's like being in a land of, of deep darkness and, and not knowing where the light switch is, not, not being able to find a match. That's what Isaiah talks about. And yet in the midst of that, when the people of Israel are experiencing that, whenever the people of Judah are, are wondering where their hope is going to come from, he tells them that, that a great light has shined that God has shined a great light on the people in darkness. And so this is how he continues. He says, The yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, that's, you all know what the day of Midian is, right? 
Okay, that's kind of an obscure reference. But uh, what he's talking about, what he's pointing to is from the book of Judges, um, during the time when Gideon was the judge, the, the leader of the people of Israel. And during that time, the Midianites had, had taken over and, and were oppressing the people of Israel. And so God called Gideon and sent him with an army to, uh, to basically fight back to free Israel from, from their nation. And, uh, and so if you remember the story, the army had gone out and, and God said to Gideon, you know, this is too many. I only want you to take some of your army. And so he ended up only taking 300 of his men. Do you know how they decided which men to take? They were getting water at a stream and the ones who lapped up water like a dog with their tongues, they were the ones that they took. And so, I mean, if you're leading people into, into battle, I mean, yeah, I guess use the ones that drink like animals. They're probably going to be better fighters, right? And, and so those are the people that, I mean, that's not really the point of the story, I don't think. But, uh, but you know, I wonder. But, but what happens in that story is only 300 people go to battle for the people of Israel, and God gives them victory. And, and so the point of this story is not that, that they can overcome, but that God gives them the victory. And, and so in the midst of this, this situation that's seemingly insurmountable, when the people of Israel have no hope, God reminds them, Isaiah, God through Isaiah reminds them, remember the time, the day of Midian, when I delivered you. There were only 300 people, and yet you had victory. And so God reminds them of that. This is how Isaiah continues, For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. And so all the relics of war, all the things that are left behind, the, the blood-stained clothing, all of those things will be burned. There'll be no more because God will set you free. God will establish peace. And so Isaiah pointed to this deliverance, and the way that they would get there, the way that they would experience that is through the birth of a ruler who would establish peace and justice. Through the birth of a ruler, this is what he says. He says, for a child has been born to us. He's speaking in the past tense, but talking about something that would come to pass in the future. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so you, you know that one, at least. That one is familiar. Who's the Prince of Peace? It's Jesus. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. And so for people who were, who were besieged from, from just beyond their borders, for people who could only see a future with war, this was what is promised, endless peace that the son of David would bring them, that the descendant of David that, that would be born would give them endless peace, something they couldn't have even imagined at that point. He, Isaiah says, he will establish and uphold the kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time onward forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so in, instead of being ruled over by a foreign power where, where might makes right, that could do to you whatever they wanted, enslave you, kill your family, that, that instead of that, all of that, that God's chosen one would rule with justice and with righteousness, that things would be the way that God intends them to be, that justice would rule. And so Isaiah speaks this word of hope to a nation that was beyond hope and, and gave them hope even in the midst of it. And, and throughout everything that came after that, that hope of the ruler that God would send sustained them. Because afterward, the, the Assyrians took over and were defeated by the Babylonians, who then, in the 6th century, took over the southern kingdom, um, destroyed Jerusalem, totally wiped it out, destroyed the temple. Even in the midst of all of that, this hope of the one God would send sustained them. As the centuries went on, they had different rulers. Um, Alexander the Great came in and his descendants um, his, uh, his heirs 
took over and uh, reigned for a while, and then eventually there were, there were a few years of um, independence, but then the Roman Empire came in, and so basically it was almost like the, the people of Judah were just being passed around from, from one foreign empire to another, and ultimately during the time of Jesus, they're ruled by Rome, and, uh, and what once was Judah becomes the Roman province of Judea. And so 700 years later, we have this prophecy in mind, and, and, um, and here's what we see is that God begins to bring it to pass. God begins to fulfill it, because 700 years later, Israel still longed for its Savior. It longed for the one who was promised, whom Isaiah had promised to them. And so we read about this in, in the book of Luke. We read about this kind of introduction. Luke sets it up, and after his introduction, this is where he starts. He says, in the days of King Herod sets it up that way in the days of King Herod. And people who were originally reading this knew of King Herod by reputation. Um, King Herod ha- cast a long shadow. In fact, we, we know the, the dates of his life, the year that he died, and that's what helps us to date the, um, the birth of Jesus. And so we think that was around 6 or 7 B.C. based on that. And, uh, but Herod was a, a man with a reputation for violence. And, uh, and so if you remember from Matthew chapter 2, after the Magi came and visited, they left, and they'd come through and let Herod know that they'd come to worship the king who was born. And so Herod had all of the, all of the um, boys who were age 2 or younger killed because he wanted to eliminate anyone who would threaten his reign. And um, this, this um, fits the, the picture that we see of Herod from other historical sources as well. He had some of his sons killed because he was afraid that they were trying to take over his throne. He had his wife killed and his wife's mother, and this was someone who was not afraid to use violence to sustain his own power and to increase it. And, and so all of that is going on, that they're oppressed by the people of Rome and the king that Rome has installed over them is one who, who kills whoever he wants because he's focused on his own power. And, and so again, we're in a situation where what could the people of Israel hope for? What could the Jewish people hope would improve? They've just been traded from one to another, and yet they hold on to that hope. And, and so we see, this in, we see this not only in the life of the nation in general, but in one couple in particular. Luke says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandment and regulation of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. So we have this couple, and, uh, and in that culture, they, they had no children in that culture. That basically, no one to carry on your line, no one to remember you after you were gone. And so that was looked upon as a, you know, it's a difficult thing. It was looked upon as, as an even worse thing in that culture. And, and so they were in that situation. Luke, um, Luke says they were getting on in years. That um, probably implies that, um, that Elizabeth had gone through menopause, that uh, having children was no longer an option. And so really they were, they were beyond hope. This uh, hope that they had of having a child uh, was not go- coming to pass. It was no longer possible. And so they had no reason to think that things could get better. They were a barren couple living in occupied territory. And in all of this, devoid of hope. And, you know, we have a, a lot of people who, who have been through that, a lot of people who have experienced that. Many of us know uh, what that situation is like. And, um, you know, we've been through something like that in our family. Uh, we have a four-year-old daughter whom we love, but if it were up to us, she would have a little brother or sister by now. And, um, and that hasn't happened. That's been difficult and painful. And uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we had a miscarriage. 
And, um, and so we were, you know, getting excited and then found out that we weren't going to have a child. And, and it was difficult. And uh, we wondered, you know, how are we going to hope in the midst of this? How are we going to go forward? And I know that's not a, that's not a story that's unique to us. There's lots of people have been through that. And uh, that's one of the things that we found after we went through it, that many of the people around us had experienced the same thing. And yet we know in, in the midst of this time, whenever we're hearing these stories, that many of us can relate to what, what Zechariah and Elizabeth had been through. So this is, what, um, this is what we read happens to them, this couple that were beyond hope. Um, one day, Zechariah was in the temple um, doing his priestly service. At that time, there were more priests than were necessary because so many had descended from Aaron, and so they would basically rotate. And uh, every so often, it would be your turn to go to Jerusalem and to do your service in the temple. And so he, um, it was his turn, and he was in the sanctuary making the offerings, and this is what happened. An angel appeared and said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, now, if you were reading, you saw that we don't hear Zechariah's prayer. And so, but we can assume based on what's just been shared about them that their prayer was for a child and uh, not a prayer that they've, they've offered immediately. You know, it's not your prayer from five minutes ago has been heard, but your prayer for decades that you've been praying for most of your life has been heard. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And so in the midst of, of this hopeless situation that this couple was experiencing, they found out that their hope had been fulfilled, that the thing that they had been praying for would be given to them, which was unbelievable enough. I mean, that it was not really possible outside of a miracle. And not only that, but their child would be the one who would prepare the way for the Savior that had been promised, for the one that Isaiah talked about. He would prepare the way for the Lord, his ch- their child, be the one that we call John the Baptist. And with the promised birth of John the Baptist, hope appeared for a couple who were beyond hope, who were beyond having any hope that things could get better. And yet for them, God performed this miracle. And we know that ultimately what, what took place afterward, nine months later, he had a cousin, six months later. Anyway, okay, I don't have the timeline firmly in my head. A few months later, Jesus was born. Our hope was fulfilled. The one that Isaiah had promised came and brought hope. And yet there, there's still that struggle that we have, though. We still wonder, what is the hope of the world? Because we look at the things that Isaiah promised, that this endless peace and this, this justice, and we see that there's violence everywhere, that there are still wars raging on. And, and you know, we look at, at the rulers in the world, and, and even the best of them are flawed. And a lot of them don't even seem to, to really have any desire to rule justly, but, but do whatever they want. And we wonder, you know, when is this going to happen? And, and what we see whenever we read this, this prophecy of Isaiah is that it points to the birth of Jesus, but not only that, but also to our hope's fulfillment at his return. It points to the coming of Christ the first time, but also the second time. And so one of the things that, that we say around here is every, every time we gather, we remember our dream uh, to create a people who sing God's praises, serve God's children, and share God's salvation until when? until Christ comes again. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're waiting for. And, uh, and that's not like until Christ comes again and then we're all going to run and hide, right? It's a sense of anticipation. It's something that we're looking forward to because contrary to popular portrayals, the return of Christ is good news. I know a lot of the things that, that we see um, said about it, a lot of the things that maybe we heard growing up, like you better get your act together because Jesus is coming, right? And you're going to be in trouble if he finds you doing that. Um, is, is we hear that it's bad news and that we need to be scared. 
And, you know, there are a lot of things in, in the book of Revelation that are troubling, that are difficult to understand. It's, it's a really hard to understand book, even today. Um, it's difficult, and, you know, it was written in code because they were under the Roman emperor. And so, uh, so talking about God's overthrow of the Roman Empire was not something they could really just come out and say. And, and so there are a lot of things that are really difficult. But one of the things that's really clear about the book of Revelation, I know you came to, to uh, church on December 1st expecting to hear about the book of Revelation, right? One of the things that's really clear about it is that the ending is happy, right? It's, it's that what happens at the end is it turns out really well. This is what we read. John, in his vision, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. And that's the promise that God will make a home among us. He continues, he will dwell with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And that's the promise. It's not a threat. It's a promise that whenever Christ comes again, that all will be set right, all will be made as it should be, that death will be no more, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that every hope that we had that, that went unfulfilled, God will fulfill, that God will bring to pass in the end. And so whenever we hope, it's, it's not some you know, naive sense that maybe things will get better. Maybe people will, will stop being so awful to each other. I mean, you don't have to read very much history to figure out the likelihood of that, right? It's not just any of those things other than we know where the story is going. We know how it ends. And because of that, we can have hope in the present. You know, there are some people I know, this is, I think this is kind of a heresy, but I'll tell you about it anyway. There are some people I know who, who will get a new book, a novel, and the first thing they do is read the last page. Isn't that awful? Well, okay. Some people do that, but, but they read the last page so that then they know what happens. And then whenever they're reading, they find out how we get there. How, how do we get there? For us, it's kind of like that. We know how the story ends. We know where things are headed. And what we're experiencing now is how we get there. But even whenever things seem at their, darkness, their darkest, even whenever they seem at their worst, we know where we're going. We know what God has in store for creation. And it's good. And it's wonderful. It's greater than anything that we can imagine. There was a, a young woman in the 14th century named Julian of Norwich, and, um, and she, as a young woman, fell really ill uh, to the point that they thought she was going to die. And so um, I mean, it was so bad that they, they administered her last rites. They thought that death was coming soon, and she had a vision. Jesus appeared to her, and one of the things that he said to her was, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And, and she recovered, was able to tell that story and continue to give hope to people. And that's not just a word of hope just for her, but for all of us. That we know that whatever it looks like right now, because of Christ, all shall be well. Because of his victory, all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. And so the foundation of our hope is not just optimism. It's the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus the return and his coming that will fulfill all of our hopes. It'll make everything as it's meant to be. And, and so it's tempting maybe in light of that to say, okay, well, things will be good at the end, so I'm just going to like 
hold on to my seat and, and uh, just try to make it through, right? I mean, there are days like that where, where that's the most that you can do, but this isn't one of those sermons where you say, just wait, it's going to be really awful, and then uh, eventually we'll get there. But how do we live in the meantime? If that is our hope, how do we live now today? And so we can look to the teaching of Jesus. This is what he says um, in Matthew 24. He says, Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the summon of man is coming at an unexpected hour. Now, that's an, another one of those that's a little bit tricky to interpret, not least of which because, uh, you know, Jesus compares himself to a thief, which, you know, is not really what you expect of, of the Messiah, but, but he does it, so it must be right. Um, but the thing that's clear in that, I mean, the things that he says, he says, keep awake and be ready. Keep awake and be ready. So the way that we live with hope in the meantime, as, as we're waiting for him to come, is, is to be ready. And, and he t- goes on to teach more about that in the next chapter. In Matthew 25, uh, he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats and, and says that, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will say to the ones on his right, come to me, all you who are beloved, and enter into my Father's kingdom. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was sick or in prison, and you visited me. I, I was naked, and you gave me clothes. And uh, this is how the people answered. They said, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you? Or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? Some of you know what comes next. The king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. As you did to one of the least of these, you did it to me. So how do we keep awake? How do we anticipate the coming of Christ? How do we live with hope in the meantime? We pay attention, and we serve the people that he called us to serve. We love the people he called us to love. We give food to the hungry. We give water to the thirsty. We give clothing to people who need it. We visit those who are sick and in prison. We love the people that Jesus called us to love. Because hope doesn't make us just sit on our hands and say, well, eventually God's going to make everything right. We have that hope. We see how God wants things to be. We see God's dream for creation. And we say, God, use me to bring that to pass now. Let me be a part of that. Let me embody this hope for others. As you've given me hope, let me share that with others. This is what theologian Daniel Migliori says about hope. He says, it fights against despair and resignation to the way things are and keeps human life open to transformation in personal and social dimensions. Whenever we experience the hope of Christ, it's not just something that we keep to ourselves, but opens up all new possibilities, opens up the possibility that, yes, things can get better, not just because people are are fundamentally good or, or because my fortune cookie said so, but because we know who has power over all things and we know where creation's headed. And so we trust that, and we live it out, and we embody the hope that we've been promised. One of the ways that we do that here is through partnerships with other ministries throughout the metro and, and even beyond, and, and one of those is the Regional Food Bank. And um, over, over the years, Acts 2 has donated over $47,000, which, which equals over 190,000 meals that we've been able to provide. We've also provided 622 volunteers hours since in the last five years, since 2014, which has saved the Regional Food Bank over $165,000 in labor costs. That's food that can go to food instead of labor. We've been able to be a part of that. 
I want to show you a video that shares a little bit more of what that's able to do whenever we're part of that. Oklahoma City is full of amazing, great people. And we have all these amazing things, but we also have pockets of our city that are comparative to a third world country. Between Oklahoma City and Putnam City Schools, where our building sits, we've got about 7,000 kids that are homeless that we know of. It's hidden in plain sight. The only break-in we've ever had in our building was last summer, and it was a group of kids who had propped the back door open, and they broke in, and they were just in the pantry stealing food. They weren't stealing computers or iPads or anything of value. They just needed food, and they were too embarrassed to ask in front of everybody else. These kids are just set up to fail from the beginning, and it starts with food. The children that have food insecurity will come in and they'll take five or six snacks and they'll stuff them down their pants and their shirts. I even saw kids put granola bars in their shoes one time. We try to spot that and say, hey, you know, you can put those in your backpack and you can have as many as you want. And hey, here's our free pantry and it's always open after school and you guys can just come fill your backpacks every day. There's always plenty. One thing that's so important is partnerships with people like Regional Food Bank. Without Regional Food Bank, um, we wouldn't be able to serve dinner and a snack every night to our kids. It makes me feel very safe because we have a roof over our head until like six. We're always able to eat dinner, have a good time. We just so much appreciate that not only did Regional Food Bank help us alleviate that financial cost and help us feed the kids, but they helped us feed the kids with dignity. so desperate that they're stuffing granola bars into their shoes. Whenever the people of God embody the hope that we have, find hope, find that they have a place where they can be loved, where they can have enough, where they can have plenty to eat, where they can go to school and actually concentrate instead of having to worry about the hunger pains that they're feeling. That's what happens whenever we take our hope and embody it for others and share it as other people can experience it as well. So how do we anticipate the coming of Christ? We do it by participating in his mission, by sharing in the work that he's called us to, by being a part of that, by loving the people that God has called us to love, by standing hand in hand with them and offering the hope that Jesus has given to us. Because the hope of Jesus was foretold in the past and it'll be fulfilled in the future, but it's embodied in the present. And God gives us the amazing gift and responsibility of embodying that for others. And one of the things that we find whenever we're willing to share hope, is that we can also find it ourselves. That whenever we don't keep it to ourselves, that it actually grows whenever we share it. And that's the privilege that we have. So here are some action steps that I want to give to you as we try to live this out together. And so the first is this Advent, I want to challenge you to prepare your heart for the coming of Christ. Do the things that help you to be open to where he's leading you, open to loving the people that he's called you to love. And so if you have a child who's in children's ministry this morning, you'll come home with an advent calendar. And, and I, I, I don't know about you, but in my house, whenever kids come home with things, they go in a pile to be looked at later. And, 
and then like six months later, that pile goes into the recycling bin because it's outdated. And so don't let that happen with this, but go through this. It gives you reading and different activities that you can do each day. It's a way that you can prepare your hearts together as a family. And so if you have children in uh, children's ministry this morning, I hope that you'll take that and use it. And, um, and if you miss it for whatever reason, talk to Miss Megan and she can make sure that you can get that. But if you don't, if your children are older, if you don't have children, then, you, then find a way. Start reading the Gospel of Luke. That's a great place to start. Or um, There are great books. There are lots of great devotional resources that Pastor John or I would be glad to point you to if you like. Just ask us. But take intentional time this Advent to prepare your heart. And then pray for Jesus to bring hope into the place in your life where you need it. That place that your heart is longing for, that place that, that feels like it, it's just darkness, that uh, maybe you've even given up that any light could be shined there. Don't just ignore it. Don't just hope maybe it'll go away. But open it to him. Ask him for his help. Ask him to shine his light because Jesus is our hope and he loves to illuminate places that seem trapped by darkness. So offer that to him. And, and then don't just keep it to yourself either, but share with someone your need for hope. Share with someone about that, because whenever we can share about those things, when we find someone that we can confide in, that, that breaks it open for God to shine even more light into that. We find that we're not alone, that there are others who are walking with us, and in that we can find hope. So one of the things that happened whenever, um, whenever we shared with people what we were going through and we had our miscarriage, we found out that there were a lot of people who were affected by it. It wasn't just us. It's, in fact, really common. And uh, we just don't talk about it a lot. But um, one of my aunts um, sent us a package that year for Christmas, and I opened it, and, and it was that little teddy bear ornament. So I called her, and she told me the story that 30 years earlier, she had had a miscarriage and bought that bear as to, just as a token to, to symbolize her loss and hung it on her tree. And so she kept that for 30 years, and then when she heard that it happened to us, she sent it to us, and we hung it on our tree and this year, whenever we, we opened our Christmas ornaments and pulled it out and hung it on the tree, I, I remembered that I was loved, that I was not alone, and it was a symbol of hope for us and reminded us. So whatever you're going through, whatever the place is where you need hope, don't keep it to yourself. Find someone. Share with someone. Ask for help. Pray with them. Because God shines his light through others. And as we share and as we allow people to confide in us, we're able to share the hope that we've been given. And then finally, spread hope by sharing with the least of these. Spread God's hope by sharing with the least of these. Take the things that you've been given that and offer them to others. Whenever we participate in that, we're able to spread hope just like we saw whenever we partner with the regional food bank. And we're able to do that in places all over the country and even all over the world. And so one of the ways that you can do that is by giving to our Christmas Eve offering. Everything that's collected at our Christmas services will go to missions beyond the walls of the church. And if you're out of town, you can also uh, make that gift online or just write on your check Christmas, and, uh, and it'll go where it's supposed to. But that's one way that we participate that. That's what makes it possible for us to give to places like the food bank. But, but also look for places where, where you have gifts and where you have opportunities that, that you can share to spread hope whether that's at home, whether that's at work, whether that's in the community, whatever that is, use your gifts to share hope. Because the hope that we have illuminates every dark place. It overcomes everything. We know that Christ will make all things right. And because of that, no matter what we're going through, no matter how dark the darkness seems, we know that God has shined a great light. And so we say thanks be to God. And we pray with the church throughout the ages, come Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we pray that you would come. 
that you would fulfill all the promises that have been made, that you would make a way for endless peace, that you would rule with justice and with righteousness, that you would heal every broken heart, that you would wipe away every tear, and that you would destroy death and, and we would live together with you forever. Lord, this is the cry of our heart. We pray that you would bring it to pass. We pray that in any dark space that we go through, no matter what it is, how great or how small it may seem, that you would shine your light, that you would illumine our darkness, that you would fill us with your hope. And we thank you that you fulfilled that hope already through Jesus. And as he taught us even how to pray, we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.